my name is Michael Keating. I've been asked to chair this session, and with me are Gleda Lan, my colleague at Chatham House, who in a minute is going to set out the problem that this initiative uh, is attempting to uh, solve and address. On her right is Ben Good of the Global Villages. GVAP, um, which is looking at energy here for off-grid communities and people, but particularly the financing models around that. Is that fair enough? Yeah. More or less. Um, Christopher Baker-Bryan of B-Box, um, which is going to, pr he's going to provide a private sector uh, perspective on this. Uh, and we were just discussing B-Box has had five and a half years now of experience of doing um, off-grid uh, solar uh, work, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, or only in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, all over, right. Um, and I am going to just introduce briefly the initiative and then swiftly uh, uh, hand over. Uh, I think this project is genuinely innovative. I mean, I think that's why we've, we're here. Uh, we were asked to be here, or we applied to be here. I don't quite know how it worked, but it is genuinely in innovative. And essentially, um, uh, Ben keeps calling me the godfather of the project, uh, and I take that as a compliment rather than Absolutely a respect. rather than a uh, uh, some kind of uh, um, you know horse heads in the bed. Yeah, yeah exactly, horse heads in the bed thing. And in in a way, it came from the observation that uh, we have a universe of people who are doing humanitarian response over here, and we have another universe of people looking at sustainable and clean energy over there. And the connections between them are not as strong and mutually complementary as they need to be. Uh, and what particularly struck me uh, about this is visiting some refugee camps and indeed visiting refugees who are not living in refugee camps and seeing the really very sad, pathetic uh, 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 way in which they are forced to uh, access energy and thinking that well maybe we need to understand how displaced people uh, and refugees use energy and whether this situation uh, can be improved uh, it was my curiosity was further piqued by then discovering that the humanitarian responders the UN agencies the NGOs are also, on the whole, really bad at using sustainable and clean energy. Uh, they are energy delinquent, most of them. Um, I'm sorry, it's, you know, I've had long conversations with them and most of them agree with this. Uh, and the use of energy um, is, uh, if you go, as many of you no doubt do, go into camps uh, and ask what the health problems facing refugees are, nearly they're always there to do with uh, respiratory problems and burns, well, guess what uh, that comes from? That comes from certain uses of energy. You talk about security problems, uh, they relate to girls and women having to go and fetch stuff uh, in bad lighting, or they revolve around mafias that develop around the purchase and distribution of expensive energy, like diesel uh, and uh, kerosene. 
Um, if you look at the... Uh, anyway, I could go on and on, and I won't, because we're going to go on. But there, there, there is a real deficit in terms of thinking smartly about energy. Um, the, some of the benefits we hope that will accrue from this project are in this splendid uh, brochure, and if you don't have it, they're listed on the back. And we believe, but we are obviously going to suspend our final word on this until we've done the uh, research, that the benefits will be both environmental, security and protection related, health, livelihoods, benefits for host populations and host authorities, and that's extraordinarily important because if you're going to change the basis upon which displaced people access energy, it needs to be done in a way that is also beneficial for host communities and host governments, as well as livelihood and economic related. Uh, and this little um, observation I had would have got absolutely nowhere had I not met people like Ben uh, and indeed other colleagues from Practical Action and a great team at Chatham House with Glader and uh, Owen and uh, um, uh, Rob and others. Uh, oh, DFID immediately, to their great credit, recognised uh, the potential of this and has got behind it and have provided quite a substantial uh, chunk of money for us to do research in three or four locations around the world to get a baseline of energy use by displaced people and refugees. Glader has been leading on that, is that fair to say? Um, I'd say Ben. Uh, uh, ben. Ben's been <laughs> leading on it, okay. Ben's been leading yeah, on it. Do. Yeah, you've been doing it from the Chatham House perspective. Sorry, Ben, of course, Fine. you've been leading on it. Uh, we also have the Norwegian Refugee Council involved. Uh, and so the idea is to, you know, get some evidence on this, uh, draw some conclusions, and then see if we can do a genuine scale-up and do nothing less than revolutionise the way uh, refugees and displaced people access energy and the way the humanitarian community thinks about energy and responds to those needs, and in a way that brings in uh, entrepreneurs. And that's particularly why uh, it's great that uh, Christopher is here. So on that note, let me first pass the floor to Glader. Is that right? Or are you going to go first, Ben? Thank Glader. you. Glader, Thank okay. You. Right, so I'm just going to say a bit about why we think energy needs moving. What's, what's the big problem? Because Michael's kind of given most of my presentation for me, um, oh <laughs> but I'll just give it some more flesh. Um, what we're looking at is a very complex picture. Um, as you all know, energy interacts with many different processes in the humanitarian field, but also the wider local population and, and um, uh, in terms of developmental and environmental concerns. Um, we want to look at. We wanted to look at how much you know. What is the picture of current energy delivery? And how much do the current practices actually cost, not just in financial terms, but also in terms of some of the things that Michael mentioned, including health um, and environmental degradation and social tension. Um, they're quite hard things to measure. We're not there yet, but I'm going to present some of the uh, working findings and I very much welcome your um, uh, feedback and, and crit critique of those. Um, I'm going to mention some of the things that surprised us and you know what we found was going on with pilots that have tried to introduce sustainable energy particularly in the camp situation um, but I'm going to mention a particular example of um, intervention in the 
urban area, given that, uh, what, about 85% of um, displaced people live outside of camps and a growing number of those are in urban areas in developing countries with all the problems that they already have around resources. Um, and, and just mention a bit about what we think is preventing the emergence of better solutions, which will lead into Ben's um, recommendations. Just to give you an idea, I don't expect you to read this. This is part of the kind of data that we're gathering on on camps around the world. This is, is, is in a way, just to show you, um, a million displaced people, a million refugees in very, very diverse conditions um, <coughs> from you know, the situation in, in Jordan where they have zinc and steel shelters, um, some grid connection uh, to places like um, Kakima in Kenya where they're very firewood dependent for cooking. Um, in most cases the camp operations are dependent on diesel, in some cases there is, there is grid connection, but th there's a really diverse um, set up in terms of the types of shelter, the way things are cooked, the, um, the, the access of refugees to, to electricity, if at all, um, and the different types of applications that refu refugee households buy. So it's extremely diverse picture, so we don't want to oversimplify. Um, to try and show that, I actually borrowed from Louise Bloom's um, attempts to draw a picture of, of energy interactions with livelihoods in the Nakavali camp in Uganda. Um, the Ugandan situation being quite different in, in the sense that it was brought up this morning that refugees are allowed to work. Um, but a lot of camps do have, you know, of course, a lot of informal business activity goes on regardless, and this is generally evolved around refugee ingenuity. Uh, you see how people use generators for lighting. People will buy electricity from you know, people generating electricity in the camp using diesel, but even some people are buying their own solar panels, um, using them for small businesses, mobile phone charging, which can lead to greater communications and and, and um, employment opportunities, and uh, and and also, of course, the more traditional uh, woods cut from the forest to to fuel cooking, and a lot of people buying batteries. I'll come back to that later. Uh, we did a study of you know we did a breakdown of of how. Um, we, we, uh, how we could, how could we deal with these uh, hundreds of camps around the world in their very different situations? We try to um, create types, camp, camp types, in order to uh, scale up to a model which would show us how much fuel was being used across the world. Um, these are the types that we came up with. There's actually this is. Um, We've got a slight update to this because I think we've got now got five camp. We've got five types, right? Um, and this was just in terms of lighting, you know, those that depended on torches and batteries, those that depended on kerosene, the electricity ones, which were the, in the minority, of course, and the solar, which is, is very, very few. So these are not equal at all, but just to give you an idea of the different energy mixes, fuel use as well, um, the, uh, the overwhelming majority of, of camps are in, are in this type, the firewood dependent type, um, and very few are... are, are um, uh, dependent on LPG or you know biofuel, but we put we put the different types in, and there were some interesting, you know, one-off examples. I think one one case in Niger where they are piloting um, the use of LPG to replace firewood. 
So what are our big numbers? What, what did we come up with? And this is just a snapshot and these figures have literally just come through to me on, on, um, on email. We had some working figures, they've been updated. We're constantly updating. Um, we know they're a bit conservative. They're, they're, they may be partial because we haven't taken into account, for instance, the World Food Programme's transport costs, um, the costs of actually the supply service for the diesel. Um, we've just taken uh, costs for the fuel and, and multiplied it by the, the um, amounts used based on our interviews with, with camp operators and based on the open source uh, data available, which is very, very limited. Um, so across camp and non-camp, um, we have this figure of 4 million tonnes of oil equivalent, which includes an awful lot of wood, so don't be confused by, by the, the word oil. Um, that equates to around $2.6 billion worth, and imagine that cost is not just borne by the humanitarian agencies, it's also borne by the refugees, part of it's borne by the refugees themselves, um, part of it may be borne by local and national governments too. So there's a shared... In a way, there's a shared cost, a shared opportunity there for change, and 15.4 million tonnes of CO2, these are all annual uh, impacts, uh, which is maybe quite small on a, on a, on a country comparison scale, but that's a lot of CO2 for the UN system to be responsible for in this area, you could, you could say. Um, how does it play out on the ground? You know, what do these figures really mean? Well, they mean that humanitarian agencies are spending a lot. Um, we just give some of these examples based on our interviews. We did interviews with about 25 camp um, uh, um, uh, experts who, who, who operate camps on a, on a daily basis. Um, Ethiopia, um, the UNHCR spent over 1.7 million US dollars for diesel. That's just for the camp facilities, the camp operations. Um, spending a lot on kerosene rations, which everybody knows the problems with those, connected with those. And um, yeah, that's according to the data that was given to us, which, which sounds very, very high. So again, we had... Oh. Mm -hmm. What happened? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe I should have my laptop and then I can just talk from the slide. Um, but okay, I'll talk, about, I'll talk about Jordan as well, because it's a case that I'm more familiar with. Um, which is when the, what happens when the costs get too high. You know, in the Nazatui camp in, in Jordan, which is now classed as Jordan's third largest city, um, the, the grid was connected to electricity. It, um, it, uh, 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 it was used for camp operations and street lighting, not households, but of course the households and emerging businesses connected uh, themselves informally from the street lights. And before you knew it, there was these cobwebs coming off all the street lights and people were, uh, as the electrical engineer said, very in ingen ingenious in how they used that electricity, even creating some kinds of heaters out of cinder blocks and copper wires and buying refrigerators. and. So on. So this is a different different type of refugee situation to the ones you see in Africa. And people had this equipment; they could buy this equipment, and they were using it. And that meant that the UNHCR, who was receiving electricity from the uh, the, the distributor for that region, Idaho, was paying the full commercial rate. And anyone want to guess, like what the what the cost? You probably know. So anyone want to guess what the cost was for last year, 2014-15, for the year? Anyone want to guess? Wanna guess? One million, two million, three million, eight point seven million dollars. Eight point seven million dollars. 
And um, so they had to cut them. So they had to, you know, they couldn't pay anymore. So they cut, they cut the wires, and that meant you know people suffered, social life suffered. People started buying diesel generators. Now they have an issue where a lot of people are using a lot of diesel. They're selling that diesel um, to the people in the camps. And yet, I mean, they're selling. You know, one you know, refugee business is, is selling to other Syrians at a higher price, maybe than they would get from uh, grid-connected electricity. And the UNHCR clearly want them to pay for that electricity. But there's a problem there because um, businesses are willing to pay for better, safer connection through the grid, but um, the, uh, the electricity authority can't connect them because they're not legal citizens and you know, they're not uh, legal there, um, so they can't pay for that connection. The UNHCR cannot charge refugees. That's just against their rules, their remits. So they're in a little bit of a, uh, a situation here and are working around some, some sort of models um, with which 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 they can use to overcome that. Right. Uh, when do I get rid of this? Oops, I'm pressing the um, So, um, yeah, South Sudan, that was an interesting example from our interviews um, in which when the, the river flooded and it wasn't possible to deliver fuel the usual way from Kenya, they actually had to fly it from Juba. We're still waiting to hear how much that cost, but um, that would be quite useful for us. That's uh, Zatari, and you can see all the businesses that people run there. Um, I think we've heard, uh, you're probably all very aware of, of the dangerous conditions. <coughs> Michael's mentioned them. We heard the tragic example from Mulid this morning of the woman who was raped and killed while she was trying to collect firewood. I mean, this is a very, very serious and horrific issue, actually, um, uh, for, for women, especially for women and, and girls and children. And, of course, the risks of smoke inhalation in the home. We're actually putting the figures together right now for health costs. It's quite a difficult one to assess, but based on, you know, what, what we have and what the WHO knows, we are trying to assess those costs. Um, we estimate that 68,000 football pitches. Sorry, I'm just checking it. Are we good on the screen? Yeah. I went to see if we can get it fixed, but it looks oh, like it's the rainforest. It's working. Okay, thank you. It's coming back. Right. Uh, can I put it onto the. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, we estimate that 68,000 football pitches worth of forest per year is, is used in, in firewood. Uh, for, for cooking and, and some lighting and heating alone um, in camps, that's just in camps. And a lot of urban situations also use firewood. Um, I've put this picture actually this is of Thailand, um, it's a huge deforestation problem and they also host uh, refugees from Burma and other places. And uh, it was interesting in that case, wasn't it, Owen, um, when we spoke to the people who bought a consortium who run the, the camps for the Karini, um, they actually import sustain sustainable charcoal from um, South Korea with a huge expense, about $4 million a year. Um, and they can't get anyone to fund that. It's very, very difficult, but they don't want to use tropical hardwood you know, from, from Thailand. Uh, two minutes. Okay, there's lots of pilots. Um, some of them are very good, some of them are very interesting. But what tends to happen is that they either they, they fail, they break, and they're not adapted um, because of due to the way they don't work within the economy or the culture. And they, or they don't get scaled up, the funding just stops. Um, we found problems, of course, relating back to the problem of central procurement um, and, and ad hoc donation. Um, and there's a lack of energy strategy for camps. And even where camps do have an energy strategy, there is absolutely no uh, certainty that it will get implemented because of the problem with uneven spread of funding. I've just mentioned this Iraqi example because there's a big difference between how much 
funds the Syrian refugees receive and how much the um, Iraqi IDPs receive. Um, uh, Donation-dependent <coughs> systems don't work. I think we heard this again and again with, with, with panels getting smashed, solar lighting's not, not work. Um, uh, Ben's, ben and Stephen's work in, in Dadaab, uh, when they went to visit the solar installations, they were, they were all broken that day, they just didn't work. Um, and that's because there's nothing to sustain them, no, no financing to sustain them. There's a lot of crossover learnings from development, um, which is why it's good to work with, with partners who've worked in energy access in the de wider development field. And I think, just draw attention to this last one, I think there's a lot of potential, we found that there's a lot of potential for innovative solutions that cross over with you know, the development and national planning, um, especially in the urban settings, but also in many camp settings because the, the, the refugees are so close to the local population who also need all these services. And um, it's very important for social acceptability that projects that help refugees also help um, the local population um, and you certainly wouldn't want a camp to look fantastic and the local village to, to have very poor access, that's just asking for trouble. Oh, <laughs> I didn't get the quote. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I wanted to say that Mercy Corps is, is, works also, as well as GVAP from Practical Action, we've also been talking to Mercy Corps who have innovative ideas of, of shifting from, you know, they want donors to shift away from a model in which funding is used just for, uh, you know, one, a one-off direct impact to something that is used as soft capital to create a market. And I think we can, you know, that the humanitarian sector can benefit from some of those models. Um, and they're doing that in Afghanistan. Um, urban areas, I just wanted to point out uh, what... Um, Norwegian Refugee Council is doing in Urbid because I went to visit this project. Um, they're finding houses for refugees in very vulnerable situations. We visited this tented community, which there's not many, but there's others that are losing their housing, where they work with the landlord um, to get them to build extra parts of their property, and that funds uh, uh, the rent, basically, for a refugee family for a year or so. But now they're thinking of using solar water heaters as part of that deal. Now they're putting solar water, uh, solar panels on, on schools as part of a public initiative to reduce the pressure on, on local facilities used by refugees. So there's some innovative ideas that you can use and then that the solar panels on schools is actually funded by um, the, uh, the an EU fund for scaling up solar not a humanitarian fund uh, so it demands a bit of thinking differently um, I don't really have to talk about these now but basically we showed um, the opportunity for large savings potential savings uh, especially if you look on a global scale in terms of what could be done um, some obviously obviously the finding is generally that there's higher cop capital costs and the question here for everyone in the room is how do you fund um, how do you fund something that you know is going to bring savings on a multi-year basis um, when the largest humanitarian actor works on a six month to one year budget um, this is just an idea of um, uh, potential um, <coughs> savings on, on CO2 emissions um, and these are the kind of targets we're looking at we can come back to this and that just to point out that that you know refugees are already paying a lot for electricity that's uh, Ben and Stevens finding from from Dadaab um, and so there is the opportunity for a business model there and I'll leave you those few final thoughts just to look over um, and um, Ben can tell us how it can all be solved. <laughs> so, so that was the problem. Uh, now the solution, Ben, and Ben is...